This episode of Modern Bonsai is brought to you by Bonsai N's online bonsai shop. If you are after quality tools that will last a lifetime but won't break your bank, then head to www.bonsaien.shop. That's bonsai-en.shop. Browse our premium online store and experience the Bonsai N difference. Shipping to Australia, USA, Canada, United Kingdom and Italy. Modern Bonsai listeners, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today I am joined by Jonas from Bonsai Tonight and Eric from Bonsify to discuss their upcoming bonsai exhibition, the Pacific Bonsai Expo. So, like always, sit back, relax, and enjoy. So do you guys just want to give yourself a quick introduction, um, maybe Jonas first and then Eric, um, just a little bit of a background on um, who you guys are in the bonsai world and then we'll go from there. Sounds great, thanks. My name is Jonas Dupuy, I've been growing bonsai for gosh, 28, 29 years, something like that. I live in uh, Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area in a little town called Alameda. It's, which is an island actually inside the bay. And I've been growing trees from scratch for most of that whole time. I actually started my first batch of pines back in winter of 1994, if I recall. And uh, main teacher was Boone Monica TV part, a, uh, who happened to live just a few blocks away from me. That's how we met and became friends. And about well, six, seven years ago, started doing bonsai full time after a couple of decades of doing it as a hobby. And now I run um, an online store and do a number of events, including the upcoming Pacific Bonsai Expo that I'll be hosting with Eric. And my name is Eric Schrader, and I've been doing bonsai since early 2002, so just over 20 years. And I spent a couple of years flailing around before I found Boone and then subsequently Jonas because he was in the same, we were in the same club. and. I've been kind of getting progressively more serious with it. I wasn't actually sure that I liked bonsai when I started it. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and so now in 2019, I started my own bonsai business, uh, which is uh, bonsify.com and uh, basically running a nursery as well as online retail. And unfortunately I can't ship plants worldwide, but uh, we do ship other things. So. Yeah, that, that seems to be the, the natural movement, isn't it? You know, doing bonsai for a long time and then moving into, you know, having a website and a blog and then eventually an online store. Yeah, I think between the two of us, Eric and I have on our respective blogs written a whole lot of bonsai articles over the years. Yeah, which is cool. I don't think, you know... I don't think anybody out there is complaining about that because the more information that makes it out there, especially from you know people like yourself that have been doing it for so long and have got so much experience, you know, it just makes everything more accessible and you know, especially for beginners. Yeah, it's kind of funny, and what's kind of hilarious with both of us, we had silly stories behind the names of our blogs getting into it, but um, 
things are a little bit more rational these days. And then it's been fun to start doing videos and the podcasts and all the other fun stuff that's allowed us to communicate with more people in more different ways, which has been really a blast. Well, I bl- yeah, I think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I moved. Yeah, I moved into doing YouTube videos about a year and a half ago and rather than blogging for the most part. And uh, it's it's crazy how the different sort of formats drive different types of engagement from the community. Yeah, well, we've we've um we've done both here at Bonsai and done the YouTube and also done done the blog. Um, and I mean, uh, one thing is, I don't think people realize how time consuming the YouTube is. Like, actually, <laughs> not only coming up with the content because you can't just do random content through the year. Like, if I wanted to do a repotting video right now, it'd be very hard. Um, but you know, also trying to make sure that you get everything filmed in that video and getting your shots in the right order because if you don't take a shot at the start of the video and you've already cut a bunch of stuff off the tree it's hard to get that shot yeah you gotta have the camera rolling (laughs) (laughs) it's uh it you know it doesn't take me that long but i like most of what i produce is like 10 to 20 minute videos but it if the if it's just like oh I'm working on this tree today that it's pretty quick but if I'm actually trying to do like something instructional then I have to like think about all the things that I need beforehand to get everything together and kind of think it out. Yeah, and you, um, Jonas mentioned there before that your blogs um, kind of have funny stories to the name. I think I think I know that Jonas's blog is kind of a playoff bonsai today. Is that right? That's right. Uh, years ago, we were talking about, yeah, it was a really funny crowd of us too. It was Andy Rutledge, Howard, Sylvia Smith, and I think uh, Marco Invernizzi were all at Boone's Garden. And we were talking about, as a joke, starting a bonsai gossip website, like the TMZ of bonsai. And I don't know who came up with it, but at one point, the name bonsai tonight came up instead of bonsai today. And I actually just left the conversation, ran inside into Boone's house and bought the domain and didn't really do anything with it for a whole lot of years. And then it became um, what it is now, a more educational website. So, so what about yours, Eric? What's, what's the story behind your uh, blog post name? <laughs> I, this was so long ago. It was like, I think it was 2001 or 2002. I, was, I, I had bought a, a fixer-upper house here in San Francisco, uh, which I still live in, actually. And... I was in the process of remodeling it and also trying to start like a photography business. And so the, the blog, the blog URL was, or still is at least for some time, Futu, P-H-U-T-U. And I was really just looking for like a really short URL with a .com on the end of it. And I was, I started with the word photo and then I was like, okay, photos for you. And then I ended up with Futu. I was like, ah, okay, that works. But uh, later I found out it's actually like a type of African food. I can't remember exactly what, uh, but if you Google it, that will come up. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it's funny how, how things just move on from something so simple like that, like wanting a short domain and then, you know, being able to use it uh, quite a few years later. Yeah, I mean, we started transitioning away from it when I actually started the business because it, it, people are... First of all, people are like, how do you spell that? And second, it has nothing to do with bonsai because when I 
I was barely a beginner at the time. I had no thoughts of using it for business purposes. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously now you've rebranded to Bonsafi. Um, am I saying that correct? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like we were just, again, it was almost the same thought process in a way, looking for like a, a memorable URL, but this time something having to do with Bonsai. Uh, and that was available and we kind of liked it. Felt felt more modern, I guess. Well, it's, it's funny when I started Bonsai N, um, a lot of what I do is just very simplistic. And it was the same when I was choosing the name for Bonsai N. I thought, what's something that's just really, really simple? And obviously Bonsai N just translates to Bonsai Garden. That's literally all it is. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's, you know, really cool. It's simple, you know, memorable. It can be kind of made into a brand and everything. But I found that the trouble that I was having with that is when I say Bonsai N to somebody who's not actually looking at the word, I actually have to say the dash in between, which makes it kind of weird. So it's like bonsai dash en. <laughs> I've gotten so many crazy pronunciations of bonsai that I, I, so a lot of people like they end up saying bonsaiify, like they're putting an extra i in there. Oh, yeah. And then I think bonsafi, and then like I don't know, the, like the UPS driver showed up at one point, and he was like, "Oh yeah, I got a package here for." bonsaiify or something like that and i was just i was like just done correcting people on the pronunciation <laughs> just take the package and be like yep that's me <laughs> thanks have a nice day so jonas you were mentioning before that you've been growing black pine from seed since about 94 um when you started growing black pine from seed was that just something that grabbed you and captivated you and made you want to keep growing black pine from seed? Well, what's funny is I'd always, I'd grown up loving Japanese gardens. The family business is a retail nursery and I really like black pines. And I remember asking Boone at one point, I'd seen and flipped through some Japanese magazines. So I knew that black pines were popular. And I said, well, why aren't there more black pines around here? And he said that we can't import them. And I quickly thought to myself, well, if we don't start growing them now, we'll never have them. And Boone had gotten some pines from, or some seeds from Kathy Shaner that had just come from Japan. And so I remember we started them in his, uh, in his kitchen that year. And it just became a whole lot of fun. I remember I was in Europe for two months that year, right after making seedling cuttings, I left town for a couple months. I think I just graduated college. And I remember calling home from, I guess that, that year it was Greece and Turkey. I remember calling home from Greece, not asking how my family was doing, but how are the pine seedlings? How are the pine seedlings? My, my mom, my mom really appreciated that. <laughs> and, uh, and it was, it just became really fun. We literally had no idea what we were doing and were guided by not one, but two magazine articles. And that was pretty much all we had to go on. And Boone provided invaluable help for that. And it just ended up being fun. So I started starting batches of pines most years. And after a few years, you learn quite a few ways how not to grow a black pine to your satisfaction. Yeah. And I think you're right too, like saying that you kind of started growing from seed because of the need for more material. And I find that here in Australia, at least anyway, the more that we're moving forward with bonsai and the more popular that it becomes, the harder it is to actually have decent stock in the nursery because it takes so long to grow it and so long to get it to the point where it can be kind of classified as good bonsai material, but then you put it out on the bench and it takes about 10 minutes to sell. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I remember seeing the pines at uh, Megumi's and a couple other gardens in Australia and just thinking, wow, when you don't have a history of Japanese gardening, you just really are not going to happen to have the material around. Yeah, well, we had um, we had the Koroshoffs here. Um, that mm -hmm. They kind of did the first batch of um, seeds that I know of anyway. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. Um, and a lot of those trees are still getting around today. It's kind of um, it's kind of like a prize to own a Koroshoff tree. Um, they're, they're really nice trees. Um, kind of the, the few pines that you can get here in Australia that truly have that age to them because those seeds were brought in and planted in the 50s, I believe. Wow. Yeah, so, but yeah, when, when it comes to material here, it's just... It, I think it's going to be quite a few years until we start, you know, actually getting more growers out there and um, getting a decent turnover of stock. And, you know, it, it takes it takes at least five or ten years to just grow the stock to begin with, and then you've got to keep that turnover happening. So it's not just something, unfortunately, that can happen overnight. Have you found that's had an effect on kind of the aesthetics for bonsai in Australia since you're working with so many either non-traditional species and or stock that has been in training for such a short time? It, it has. Um, so a, a lot of people here will actually work on our native material, like our melaleuca and our tea trees, the bottle brush, all that kind of stuff, because it it's in the environment that it wants to be in. So it grows insanely fast like we can take a, a small pencil thin sapling of say a tea tree and grow it for five years and it'll be really really thick um and the branch development on them is really fast um as as long as you keep everything in balance because they are very apically dominant so if you let the top get too strong then you lose the whole entire bottom section of the tree but we do find that because most of the material that's available here is young material and people want to get into styling straight away, we end up with immature trees styled too early, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely uh, makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I think the same thing happens here. But But once again, that's just because the the stock is not really available and that's really nobody's fault. It's just this art became so popular, you know, really quickly and we just didn't have the nurseries or the growers to keep up with that demand. I think Eric has um, taken that point to home more than anyone else I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the, the thrust of, well, a major part of the, the operation that I'm running is just basically starting trees from scratch and doing it, doing it, you know, to the market demand, uh, but also better than what I think has happened up to this point in the United States. And it's hard to keep compete with Japan, but since we can't uh, import anything, it just seems like somebody has to start thousands of trees. And so uh, <laughs> I, I have a few thousand. Yeah, and I yeah more than a few thousand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I find too that with with our nursery here, at least anyway, um, like you said, you got to try and you know supply to the demand, but you've also got to try and 
create for the future at the same time, which can be a difficult thing, but we kind of split our nursery up here into little sections. So we do have like a little gift tree section where we just have young, immature stock in bonsai pots with basic styling, but they're, they're very cheap, but they allow people to come in and buy a gift, which usually gets um, the, the person who's receiving the gift into the art of bonsai. So that is a fantastic thing within itself. Um, and then on top of that, we have a section which is just raw nursery stock. So providing the plant material, but it hasn't actually had any work done to it. And then we try to provide also pre-bonsai stock, so nursery stock that's had some basic root work and wiring and all of that kind of stuff done to it. And then also on top of that, actual bonsai material. But then in our growing section, which we don't let customers into, we're trying to actually grow <laughs> bigger, better trees for the future and, um, you know, take cuttings and do all that, do all that crazy stuff. So it's just, it's all over the place. Is that, is that the same for you there? Well, mm, some of it, <laughs> I actually like, we were only basically retailing online. Um, I, I have some people local that pick up, but I also don't allow people to visit the growing grounds. And that's, you know, kind of for the same reason that you're talking about, like, you don't want people cherry picking the the best of the trees before they're even really great trees and but we do pretty much all of our own propagation because i've just consistently found that i can't get anyone in the u.s nursery industry to supply like let alone the the correct cultivars but like in any sort of numbers that are you know and and having the cost not be astronomical plus the health of plants that you buy from other nurseries is always problematic in bonsai i think and so it's just like a long list of problems i guess that i'm trying to solve through through growing you know propagating specifically for bonsai rather than just taking something that's been propagated in a general nursery um gives you kind of a a head start i think on on creating interesting shapes and then and then obviously the the thing that just takes forever is is growing them out until the trunks are of appropriate size so yeah and like as you said numbers is a big game because i know a grower here in australia that um got his hands on about forty thousand junipers and he thought great this will do me for the next 10 years and i'll be able to sell junipers you know x amount per year and then by the end of 10 years i'll have some bigger trees that we can do more stuff with and he sold a lot in two years whoa gone that is a lot yeah moved <laughs> the entire thing was just gone <laughs> i don't have that many but i think i have about five thousand juniper or something like that yep and um i maybe he should have been charging more <laughs> <laughs> That's just great. Like the last time I went to buy a stock, I was like, got any junipers? He was like, I literally have two left. And I was like, well, you have, you have none left now because I'm taking them. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. It's... It, the, I was talking to, I have one full-time employee and I was like talking to someone about um, the, you know, the propagation and like just sort of setting up a pipeline of material uh, so that like, say if I want to, create 2000 junipers a year the first year i have 2000 junipers the second year 
four, six, eight, ten. And so it's like, well, if it takes you, you know, six, seven, eight years, all of a sudden you have seven or eight times as many junipers. But it's been kind of interesting as a process to go through it because the propagation is just dull as bones. I mean, it's just so <laughs> it's like it's like your arm is a robot and you're just like sticking, cutting after cutting after cutting. I think the first year I did like 60 flats with like 150 each and don't call me on the math because they didn't all take, but, uh, but it's just, you know, the, the whole operation just kind of balloons because they're, they're getting bigger, you know, like the three-year-olds are twice the size of the two-year-olds and, and the two-year-olds take up six times as much space as the fresh cuttings. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, where am I going to put all these? Yep. (laughs) <laughs> and and then you've got you got to mix up all the soil and then you've got all the nursery pots and yeah er, er, everything just builds up on top of you really quickly i think jonas said it i was just over at his house a couple of days ago and he was like you know growing's not easy <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely yeah but yeah go ahead jonas there's between us you know how many years have we been growing and we're still asking very fundamental questions. When do we make that cut? When do we repot that? What is the optimal pot size? What is the optimal soil for what we're going for? The more you know about your goals, the better a guide you have for what decisions you make. But even when you get everything theoretically figured out, a new change in the weather or a new insect or a new pathogen, something will find a way to keep it interesting. It's just not a dull moment kind of pursuit. Yeah, let alone the customers changing their minds about, you know, you start something in in 2019, maybe by 2029, nobody's buying junipers anymore. They all want maples. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that could be a problem that that's happened in Japan quite a few times where, you know, what's popular and, you know, what's the big, the big ticket item changes suddenly. Yeah, there's risk throughout the process. Which kind of keeps it interesting. It does. So in San Francisco, um, does the does the weather and the environment there allow for you know good growing conditions? <laughs> so I guess I'll speak specifically to San Francisco. Um, there's a lot of microclimates, and Jonas and I, you know, as the as the crow flies, are probably less than ten miles away from each other, but have very different conditions. I'm on the the eastern half of San Francisco. So we don't get like as much blowing fog and socked in all summer uh, as the western half and some some other parts. But it uh, in my yard, I've kind of concentrated on mostly conifers and a lot of kind of higher elevation conifers, especially the, the natives that I have in the yard because anything like a Japanese maple or the majority, vast majority of deciduous material, the summer is too cold and the winter is not cold enough. Yep. Yeah, that, that's kind of the challenge that we face here. Um, before we started, I was telling Jonas that we don't really keep a lot of deciduous material here because we just don't have the winter for it here. And although, you know, the trees don't just up and die straight away, over you know four five six seven years they just gradually get weaker and weaker yeah we're both very familiar with that process for a number of species 
yeah, it's um, unfortunately just something that, you know, you find out as, as time goes on and, you know, I think pretty much my entire collection, most of my collection is conifers and broadleaf evergreen um, and there's very few deciduous trees in there that I'm having high hopes for but I know that it's probably going to be disastrous. <laughs> yeah, I definitely make my decisions less and less based on what I want to grow and more and more based on what loves the climate here. Yeah, cause, I mean, you get more results out of what's in its environment. Like I said before, with the Australian natives here, they just absolutely grow and develop like nothing else that we can have in our collection. That's true. So, and natives are, oh, natives are a tough thing because, you know, native to, your city, your county, your state, your country, your continent, uh, depending on what we mean when we say native, that means a lot of different things. Native to where I live, there's pretty much oak trees and nothing else. And that's one kind of oak tree. But if you go five miles away, we can add a bunch of other kinds of trees. And uh, so it just depends on how broad you are in interpreting what you choose to identify with when claiming the native uh, connection. Yeah, I, I should just point out to um, listeners too, um, that we are doing this over Zoom, so I'm not intentionally trying to cut anybody off. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've always got like this weird delay on Zoom, you know, where you, you go to intersect in the conversation, but somebody else does at the same time, and then that delay hits, and then it's like, you know, when you're walking towards somebody in the shopping center and you both go left and you both go right? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. A friend yes. of mine actually was responsible for setting up internet connections between here and India at one point. And it was really interesting. They kept checking their math again and again and again, and they couldn't figure out why there was a delay in the hardware until someone got a bright idea. The light bulb popped off over their head. He did some quick math and realized it was the speed of light that was causing the delay they were experiencing. <laughs> yeah, smarter people than me work that out, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah I, I exactly so you guys um are obviously planning your own bonsai exhibition that's coming up um do you want to just tell us a little bit about that some of the details that you have um and then we'll jump into that and talk about that a little bit more i can mention that it was born on a drive home from a bonsai exhibit when eric and i thought you know, we should probably do an event like that. That was really fun. <laughs> Little yeah, did we I mean, know. Well, I think like in a way though, props to Boone because uh, he was so show focused for, you know, both for the club and for his business. And I think it was something that, um, that he kind of instilled in us. And so coming back from that show, we just, we were just like, well, maybe we should do our own show and have it be like a big event. That would be really fun. Yeah. Cause um, Bob and I touched on it in the last episode of the podcast that we did, which is what kind of reminded me to reach out to you guys. Um, but you guys only really have one national show at the moment, isn't it? That's right. Every other year in Rochester, New York. Yeah. And I, I, I still haven't been because it's so far away. <laughs> And, and I've foolishly done the drive three times in a row now. And I, one reason, one motive behind the show is just to prevent people from ever having to do that drive again. 
Well, what about the people from New York? <laughs> we actually have people from New York planning to come out here, but I think we can have lots of regional shows around the country. It just doesn't, it's, it's a pretty big effort to make a 3,000 mile drive for a bonsai show. Yeah. And I think, you know, like one of the things that Bob mentioned, and I don't know if you guys are going to have this same um, challenge, but being able to bring trees from certain states um is that more of a is that less of a challenge where you guys are or about the same oh it's more <laughs> of a challenge for us than almost than most parts of the entire country uh though luckily the hurdle is fairly straightforward people coming from outside the state will need to obtain phytosanitary certificate. So they'll call their county inspector. They'll have them look at the trees and give them a piece of paper that they show at the border if requested. Yeah, we uh, we actually downloaded the, there's like this publication from the California <laughs> ag people and it's, it's very oddly organized. So we had to like completely reorganize it into a chart and found that pretty much every tree needs a phytosanitary. And then like there's certain species that you're just not allowed to bring into California, usually stuff having to do with food. So no plum trees, no persimmons, no, uh, I'm forgetting what else, but there, you know, there was a, there was a few of them where they were just like under no circumstances or any plant of this type allowed to come into the state. <laughs> They're actually more strict about fruit. So if you come over the border, you're actually better off with a bonsai than you are with a banana because they, uh, they really don't want fruit coming into California. Yeah, and it's just a shame that they don't realize how much we do look after our trees and make them pest and disease free. And, <laughs> you know, we do all that work for them. Yeah, I think and so far Jonas the system's I, been working well, which is nice. Jonas and I were pretty tickled when we found within the regulations, and this was only for one specific pest, that there's an exception for pine bonsai. Like, it's like the regulation specifically says you can't bring this you know pines into this into the state because of this but if they're bonsai you can bring two <laughs> well there you go that that works out in your favor at least anyway <laughs> and i just found out in the federal regulations for importing bonsai is now a category of plant that you can bring in because they talk about plants for propagation plants for other purposes and then bonsai now has its own category in the federal uh, permit process well i mean when you think about it bonsai really is its own plant category like it was actually this morning when i um checked my phone i actually had a comment on my youtube channel on one of my videos um you know that was talking ab about bonsai care and somebody had left a comment saying that um oh i find it silly that you actually teach bonsai care because it doesn't matter whether a juniper is a bonsai or a juniper is just out in nature. It's the same tree, so it doesn't require any different care. And I was like, whew. Um, <laughs> That's a tough one to respond to. Where, where do I start? Yeah. Where do I start here? <laughs> you know. Yeah, yes and no. Like, yes, it is still a juniper, but the environment that you introduce it to, the bonsai environment, is completely different and... You know, I, I just tried to explain that, you know, when you take a tree out of nature and put it in a small, shallow pot, you take away all of its natural resources and then you become its resource. So the care for the tree absolutely does change. And, you know, I find that bonsai itself is 
basically its own category of plants for that reason. Yeah, it's true. Because I mean, the 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 whole thing changes really. I mean, you see people who do, um, you know, just regular horticulture, and you know, they talk about how they they treat their plants and how they would do this and how they would do that, and you know, they they would probably have a really good time with bonsai because they've done gardening and everything for years and years. And it's like, you got to explain them. Well, things change a little bit, watering changes, you know, feeding changes and, you know, the way that we look after the root system and all this kind of stuff, every, everything changes. It's, um, it's a whole new ball game when it comes to, when it comes to bonsai. I think I, like I came at, I came at horticulture from bonsai. So I, uh, it's kind of crazy for me to think about it, but more and more I find myself, uh, you know, in operating a nursery that I just think to myself, oh, I'm just going to put that in a bigger container. But that's like, it's not like second nature to me because I'm like always <laughs> so used to putting things into smaller containers. And it's like, it, it's almost like it's liberating. They're like, wait, I can just put this in a five gallon container and then I won't have to worry about it drying out. <laughs> so, with with the um the bonsai show, where exactly is it being held? So, it uh, it's a historic building called the Bridge Yard, and it is right on the San Francisco Bay, actually right next to uh, the foot of the Bay Bridge on the east side, and. The building was actually the maintenance facility when the Bay Bridge was originally constructed. It's double decker, and the lower deck, instead of having cars on it, was actually for trains. And so this was the maintenance facility for those trains before they removed all the trains to have the lower deck going one direction and the upper deck going the other. Yeah, cool. Um, so when you guys are, are setting up a bonsai show um you know besides the fact of getting the trees there what has been some of the biggest challenges so far in the show and i know this is probably a really broad question because i can imagine that setting up a bonsai show is just challenge after challenge after challenge after challenge <laughs> but what are, what are some of the biggest challenges that you guys are facing setting up this bonsai show well, we can start with some of the most fun challenges, which really we were looking forward to. Early on, we decided we wanted to assemble a jury of bonsai experts who would determine which trees would end up uh, making it to the display. There are a lot of number of a lot of different ways that trees get into exhibits around the country, and we thought it would be fun to just get as many submissions as we can for just the absolute best trees that we could you know, encourage people to submit and then turn it over to a panel of experts. And so our first step early on in the process was identifying who would we want to determine which trees get into the show. So, yeah. And we, so we just kind of reached out to the professionals and ended up getting uh, Ryan Neal and Bjorn. I don't think I need to say his last name because there's only one Bjorn in Bonsai. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and Bill Valvanis uh, to be the to be the jurors and just like Jonas was saying to encourage submissions we didn't charge people to submit trees 
uh, even though there's a cost for them to go, you know, because you have to pay the jurors, they're professionals. And um, and so we got a lot of really good submissions. And I think we were both really pleased with that. Yeah, I mean, talk about coming out of the gate strong with your jurors. <laughs> I mean, you just straight to the top, huh? Yeah, we were lucky that our first choices said yes. And we thought, great, that's really fantastic. Yeah, and I think that that's really going to show with the, the trees that are submitted because you're really going to have, you know, the top quality trees. Um, but how many trees did you guys have submitted? Do you know? Let's see. So what we can say is that we will have we selected trees for 75 displays. So it's a greater number of trees, but there'll be 75 displays at the event and fewer than half of the submissions were accepted. Okay. And when it comes to the, this, the displays there, are they, um, what kind of categories have you guys got set up for the show? Well, so there's, oh, I'm going to, get this wrong but there's there's a shoheen category then there's a medium category and those kind of encompass any different kind of tree not not distinguished by species because we imagine that there will be a mix of you know deciduous and conifer and broadleaf evergreens and uh and then in the large categories which are 18 inches and over um we have large broadleaf evergreen large deciduous and large conifer so that gives us five total categories uh, and then from the winner of those categories we're actually going to select the best in the show as well okay cool yeah i mean i i guess it's kind of hard to in your first year of a show make specific categories because you need some data you need to know what's going to get submitted because i mean it'd be kind of hard to have a full shohin category and there's only one shohin or two shohin trees actually submitted and you know the rest are in the medium category or you know the the larger category um so i guess maybe after is this going to be an annual thing i think we're every planning two years yeah we're planning for biannual not uh not every year yeah it's probably too stressful to run it every year plus Jonas has so, some other projects in mind <laughs> exactly the uh the it's kind of a card horse situation with the categories in that the number one reason we went with categories at all was to encourage people to submit different sizes and species because we want we think it's fun when you go to an event that has good representation of diversity in sizes and styles and so we wanted to incentivize that and and it ended up working. And if people aren't happy with the results, then ideally that will incentivize them to submit into those less well-represented categories in subsequent events. Yeah. And in terms of the event, is it um, like a one-day event or a two-day event? It, two it's days a full, of events? Yeah. It's a full two days. So it's a full Saturday, Sunday event. But uh, in advance of that, the the exhibitors will need to be there uh, on friday and i'm sure that we're going to be there on thursday and monday as well um so it's for the general public it's a two-day event but there's 
a lot of people that are going to be there for three days plus. And and within those days, is it just a bonsai show or is there going to be demonstrations as well? Jonas. <laughs> bonsai show and vendors. If we had the space, we'd look for doing all kinds of other events, whether lectures and demonstrations, but based on the size of the venue, we wanted to just use as much space as possible for the exhibit and for the vendors. And if we had as nice a venue with double the space, we'd love to fill it up with more vendors and then we could start doing events like having demonstrations. We will be doing docent tours and I suspect a number of professionals will kind of step into that role. A lot of fun people are expected to be there. So it could be that we have a whole bunch of different tours. People can just kind of jump in and join in throughout the weekend. Yeah. And, and like mentioned before, like being the first event, I mean, you obviously don't want to hire a venue that's too big straight away just to have demonstrations and that kind of thing. Um, but I mean, even in itself, just a bonsai show and um, a vendor area, especially after the last two years of not being able to go to bonsai shows or bonsai stores in person. I mean, it's just going to be so incredible to be back in that environment anyway. Yeah, there have been a handful of local events and the turnout has been just unbelievable and people are so thrilled to come out to the expo this fall it's just awesome like the excitement and anticipation is well beyond anything we could have expected going into this and it's uh it's keeping us uh on top of everything to try to make sure that we're covering all these details and make sure we have everything in place for when the doors open up yeah well i think you'll find too that um because we we had one of our larger shows here a couple of months ago and I think you'll find because of everything that happened with COVID and everybody being locked down, you'll probably find there'll be just as many people at the show who aren't necessarily in the world of bonsai yet, but out and about and just doing everything that they can and seeing everything that they can. Um, so that may help, you know, grow the world of bonsai just that little bit more. No, oh, we'd love it if that happens. Yep. Yeah, that's the fantastic yeah, I mean we picked a, I think we picked a venue. It's a, it's a complicated calculus, but the great thing about the venue is it, even though it's not really that big, like it's not like a giant convention center or something like that. Um, it has a really kind of spacious roomy feel. And I think we will, we have the capacity to have quite a few visitors at once. So we really are, you know, to your point, we're really hoping that we can attract not just bonsai people, but also a lot of friends of bonsai people and 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 people who have never seen a bonsai show before. And is the show going going to have any kind of media coverage, whether that's just on the on a YouTube channel, or is there going to be any kind of live streaming or anything like that happening at the show? It's a fantastic question for our media manager. It's <laughs> laughing because we don't have a media manager. Uh, my, my, my wife is a marketing professional and she's been kind of cobbling together uh, Instagram posts. So there is an Instagram handle for the show uh, at Pacific Bonsai Expo. And uh, we would encourage listeners to, to follow that for updates as well as just checking the website. In terms of like what 
we're going to be doing the weekend of we're still in the in the throes of setting up a lot of these details and since it's the first show we don't have anything to kind of like look at other than other shows that we've been involved that that were really of a very different scale um so i think you know ryan's Ryan's Artisans Cup show is is certainly a good blueprint for us. And we think that the the media coverage for that event was really good. So we're certainly striving uh, to have uh, other outlets, not just us, but also um, our, as Jonah says, our media manager, our non-existent uh, manager, <laughs> uh, you know, sending out social media, especially and ramping it up as we get closer to the event, I think. And then during the actual event, I think... I don't know. I just imagine being so for busy someone that... to do some streaming or at least some video because we really want to be able to convey to people what it's like there. If one of the highlights of the event is that we're in this enormous open space with floor to ceiling glass with tons of natural light from multiple directions, we really want to convey to people what it's like to be there for those who can't make the trip out. Yeah, it's always good for you know people around the world um because me and bob spoke about this in the last podcast that you know it's great with youtube and all that kind of stuff somebody like me who can't actually physically make it to the event actually being able to somewhat feel like i went to the event see the trees um you know maybe hear from some of the people who exhibited there i think it was I'm pretty sure it was you guys on the Bonsai Wire podcast that did interviews at the national show, wasn't it? Yeah, Andrew and I spoke with a bunch of people at the national show back in September. Yeah, see, even that was really cool. Um, you know, it's just a little bit of an insight into what's happening at the show and getting to at least be a part of it if you can't be there. Yeah, and we want to do that exact same kind of thing here. It's just a neat opportunity because there's going to be a lot of people from all over the country coming in to enjoy it and trees from actually quite a broad um, geographical swath of the U.S., primarily the Western states, but it's uh, it's going to be a really fun mix of uh, trees in there. And about the trees, one of the other kind of key motivations why we wanted to do the event in the first place when we were dreaming about this in that far-off car ride was that we wanted to see a really outstanding show in our area. Um, Northern California is a fantastic place for new enthusiasts in that we have somewhere between 15 and 20 clubs all within a, about a two hour drive of each other. And that is awesome for giving people local opportunities to learn from local peers. What it's not as good for is uh, a big regional event that kind of shows off the highlights from all of the work that all of those different groups are doing. And so we were kind of adamant going into it about making this an open event that anyone, wherever they are, who can get a tree to the venue is welcome to participate. And because we really want to show off, well, what can we do if we just pull together the best of everything? How can we encourage people to learn about and really increase their appreciation of truly beautiful trees? Yeah, I think, what you guys are doing is absolutely fantastic because like everything else, you know, I mentioned before that, you know, the more podcasts about bonsai we can have, the better. And the more YouTube channels and the retailers and growers, and then also bonsai shows, like the more bonsai shows that people have to go to throughout the year, you know, the better. And it'd be really cool if we could actually have, you know, 
be a lot of work, but bonsai shows in every season to showcase, you know, you could have you know, spring flowers or, you know, you know, so in, in Australia we have some trees that um, flower throughout the summer as well and then you can have an autumn colour show, a winter silhouette show. I mean, as, as time goes on, hopefully all these things start to appear. I think historically some of the local in the Bay Area, at least some of the better shows have been in either mid late winter and early spring. Um, and there's, there's, when I was a beginner, I went on the whole, I guess, call it a show circuit because at the time there, all of those clubs were putting on shows at different times of the year. And it was kind of like what, almost like what you're saying, because there's a, you know, there's a winter show, then there's a show in March as things are starting to leaf out and, and so on. And it really did. If you went to all of the different club shows, give you, give you that perspective. But the one thing that was kind of missing was a quality fall show uh, until the Marin Club, which is just north of San Francisco, put on one for a number of years. And I remember it being my absolute favorite show uh, for like three years in a row. And I wasn't even in the club. And it was that's not to take anything away from the DIB show, which was really high quality. But it's like that fall color added on top. So we're really hopeful for this show being basically the date was picked for the peak of fall color locally. Uh, so we expect, you know, trees coming from further North will most likely just be bare uh, deciduous trees, obviously. Um, but we're really hoping to get some, some good fall color and the jurists actually took that into account. I think a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, that, that's one hard, that's something that's hard to master too is, you know, getting that full color in your tree, because if you, you know, you mess up earlier in the seasons, you don't quite get that, you know, that vivid color or, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not, it's not simple. It it, it adds that extra layer of complexity to the, (laughs) to the whole thing. I mean, obviously not for those who are, uh, you know, showing conifers or, or whatever, but I mean, I just so I have so much respect for the people that can do quality deciduous material. It is really one of the top tier, you know, things to work on in bonsai. And I mean, I think for me because I can't really have deciduous trees, I don't have a ton of experience in deciduous. But from what I have personally seen, it's it's such a difficult thing to master, and yet so think- fun. I th- and I think, you know, all three of us probably live in a, in a climate that's not ideal for deciduous. Uh, I think, in fact, I remember having an online conversation with uh, Sergio Kwan before either of us were really professional or semi-professional and me telling him, yeah, I really don't like Japanese maples because I never get any fall color. And he's like, what are you talking about? Well, he lives in New Jersey. You know, it's like, there's maples all around him. It's it's the environment for deciduous trees. It's humid all summer and warm, and then it's cold in the winter. And you know, if so, if the climate fights you, it's like it's pretty hard to do top level bonsai if you're trying to grow something that's not really happy in your environment. Yeah, and best case, even if we have Japanese maples that are healthy, 
it's on average, it's not one in 10 years where we get fall color. Typically they turn brown. So we get very consistent brown fall color, but that's not usually what leads people to want to grow them. (laughs) When I first started in bonsai and I had, had maples and stuff and fall would come around and the leaves would just dry up and go brown and drop off the tree. And I was like, is this, is this the fall color that they keep talking about? Like, I just, I just don't get this. <laughs> exactly. It, it's kind of hard to switch on to what's going on there. Um, so we mentioned at the show that there's um, going to be exhibits and vendors. Um, what What kind of space do you have for your vendors? Do you have a lot of vendors that are going to be there? Kind of a medium number of vendors that'll be there. Half of the room will be vendors and half of the room will be displays. Um, And we're still finalizing exactly who's going to be there, but we're actually going way out of our way to make sure that we are offering to visitors a good mix of items available. So it'll be some potters, some supplies, some less developed trees, some more developed trees um, with a bias toward really nice trees because it's there are no obvious venues around here where multiple people will be selling high-end materials. So we're going to try to get a little more than that than is normally available. And I don't know about Jonas, but uh, well, Jonas and I both will have vending tables at the event uh, in addition to having trees in the exhibits. And uh, for myself, at least, I will be bringing trees for sale at the event that won't be available before that, uh, that I've had in development for many years. So just to dangle that in front of people a little bit. Yeah. And I've actually heard that from a number of people that it'll be more an opportunity to bring items from their own collections, which will be, which I'm really looking forward to seeing actually. Well, that'd be cool too, because, you know, when people walk around and they, they look at really nice trees in an exhibition, they're probably going to be more or less inclined to buy a nicer tree for their collection you know, after, after seeing some inspiration rather than just maybe buying nursery stock. Yeah, I think it could be really fun. And that's one of the highlights of going to these larger regional events is that there are more opportunities for finding some trees that have been in development for longer. So when it comes to setting up the actual exhibition, um, is it more of your like traditional style set up with, um, you know, like your tables, can people have, you know, um, like a three point display, like a, uh, a tree with a stand and then obviously maybe a Kusumono and a Jita and a scroll or what's the kind of setup for the, the displays? I think that, uh, we'll kind of have to break it down a little bit, but it, it is so, <laughs> Prior to the submissions, we actually wrote uh, and talked about in a both podcast and on uh, a YouTube episode that we were looking for people to work with for non-traditional displays. But um, the vast majority of what we had submitted was for traditional display. And so the each exhibitor will get either a six or eight foot space uh, on a table with a regular backdrop and uh, whatnot, and that the six and eight foot spaces are based on just uh, large trees versus well, not any large tree, but like sort of extra large trees for the eight foot tables, and uh, then regular sort of large trees and 
medium displays, which might just be one medium tree or might be a medium tree and a small tree displayed together, like a three point like you were talking about, and showing displays. So there'll definitely be a mix and most of those will be pretty traditionally uh, exhibited. Yeah, because I've actually been to some shows and um, seen some displays that were a little bit off the wall and they're actually really cool to look at. You know, I've seen I've seen one display that there was um, there was like sand spread out all over the table and then like a rock planting put within the sand and it actually looked like a tree that was growing off a rock on the beach. It was just it was absolutely awesome to look at, you know. Yeah, that's, yeah I mean, I mean, that's kind of what we're hoping for over time is we're hoping that, you know, year after year, more and more people want to kind of go out on a limb and try some new things and some fun display ideas. And we will have some at the event. We actually have the entire front of the room devoted to some more creative approaches to bonsai display. Yeah, we're, I mean, actually, I'm really passionate about that kind of thing and have in the past spent months of work to put on a two-day display uh <laughs> and you know whether that's just building a, a stand or building something that is more non-traditional i think we really want to encourage people to do what they want within their space and it was during the submission process that we were trying to distinguish anyone who wouldn't be able to basically put their display on a table that was the that was the dividing line so if you can if you can fit it on a table uh, then it's more up to you, the elements that go into that space. Whereas if it won't go on a table and is more like a, you know, you're walking into an art gallery or a museum room and there's one giant thing taking up the entire room, then we need to know about that in advance. And we're working with a couple of people uh, to kind of curate that kind of thing for one end of the, the display area, but it's uh, a lot of pieces in motion still. So we're not we're not hundred percent sure of exactly what's going to shake out. Yeah. I think it'll be, you know, like I've mentioned before, it'll be all trial and error, you know, first year of the show, but I really, I really like the fact that you are giving people the option to kind of do what they want within their space. Um, you know, push those boundaries a little bit more, um, maybe try and break away a little bit from the, the three point display or, you know, whatever they, they might want to do. Yeah, I think we both really want to see that around here and want to do as much of that as possible. And so we are learning very quickly that we are going to have to lead the way. And it might be, uh, I know Eric is working on some fun stuff and I might as well, because we think it's just a lot more fun to go into a room where you see something other than a table on a table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I spiraled down a mental rabbit hole on table on a table at one point and just thinking to myself <laughs> like this is ridiculous why are we putting tables on top of other tables but well that you're undoing my russian doll idea display where it's a table on a table on a table on a table well if you can pull it off i you know there's space for it <laughs> <laughs> all right so what josh when you when you first when you first mentioned the challenges that come to mind um uh, right after the challenge of the figuring out how the jury process would work, one of the fun ones then became, well, if we're doing different categories for judging, how in the world are we going to let, how are we going to adjudicate the event? And we came up with a model that was very familiar for the two of us, but new to a lot of other people. 
And that is people who have trees in the exhibit will have the opportunity to join a judging panel and they will actually be the ones that get to vote on which trees win awards. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's different, isn't it? We're going that's to actually, ask all of them. Yeah, that's actually how, that's how the Bay Island Bonsai Club that we both belong to kind of awarded uh, awards for the, for the club exhibit. But I think this is going to be a little bit more complicated uh, just because of the number of people. But Yeah, the, the couple little twists we're doing are we are asking the judging panel to evaluate every single tree, not every tree, every display in the event before we'll accept their card, their, you know, their evaluation form. And we will see, you know, how many people want to participate. We'll make the judging process itself fairly straightforward. Everyone will award a score. We'll toss out some highs and lows, and then just, we can let math do the rest. But it's, uh, in BIB, every member of the club got to participate, whereas in our event, it's just going to be the people whose trees are actually on display. The idea being that you need some skin in the game before um, participating. And we're really curious to see how that goes. You know, it was kind of a gamble on the jury process and it, this is kind of a gamble on the judging. And so we're all really excited to see what happens when we announce the results at our uh, banquet we're hosting on Saturday night at the event. And I guess, I guess that's pretty hard too with setting up the, the judging process because with your show, is it, you know, the judging criteria, is it fairly traditional in a sense of, you know, pot choice, um, you know, positioning in the pot, um, you know, movement in the trunk direction, you know, leaf quality, all, all that kind of stuff. Well, now that you mention it, what would you suggest? How would you want to instruct a, a member of the judging panel to assign their scores? Well, I mean, for me, just from a very traditional standpoint, you know, I'm, I'm what people hate. So I'm, <laughs> I'm what you would call somebody who's very traditional and kind of sticks between the lines with my bonsai. And I don't force that onto anybody else. Um, but you know, I would, I would be looking at the things that have already been put in place, such as, you know, pot choice. Does it work with the masculinity of the tree or the femininity of the tree um in terms of like the shape and the lines um obviously does the color match the tree in terms of you know if it's a deciduous tree was the pot color chosen to match the the full color of the display because as you know when you choose pot color for a deciduous tree you could be choosing it to complement the bark color or you could be choosing to complement the the um, spring flush color, all the fall color, just depending on when you're going to show that tree. Um, <clears throat> and then obviously how tidy is the soil surface? Um, is it looked after nice and well? Is it evened out? Um, not a huge amount of uneven mounding. Um, obviously bark quality, tree movement, um, branch placement, um, you know, taper, branch taper. All, all that kind of stuff. How healthy is the tree in terms of is the foliage vibrant? Is it um, pest and disease free? Um, you know, the size of the foliage, all that kind of stuff. I guess it would all come down to, I, 
I've, I've never done, well, I've never set up for judging, so it's hard to say exactly which of those things that you would pick because you can't be too, um, I guess, stringent on what you would have because I, I guess it takes a bit of the fun out of it, you could say. But there is a lot of traditional guidelines out there that you could fall back on. And then the question is, do we ask the judging panel to follow that approach or do we let them do whatever they want? Yeah, see, that's hard again, because then you open it up to, um, you know, the judges themselves, because the, the three that you've mentioned have very, very different styles. Um, you know, they, they practice bonsai at a very, very high level. And I think, I think if you broke it down to fundamentals and they would probably all agree on the same things, but when you broke it down to aesthetics, that's where I think it would divide them. Um, so I guess when you were making a, a judging sheet, I guess you could call it, or a criteria, you, you need to kind of, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is stick to something that they would all agree on and try and have less of the um, things that they would clash on which I guess would only be aesthetics. And it's funny you mention that because you, in a way the jury process was a miniature form of the judging process in that we got votes or scores, you could say, from three high-profile, well-known people. And they did not choose the exact same trees. They, uh, they definitely recognized very high levels of excellence in bonsai, uh, both character and design. But when it came to that swath of trees where there were plenty of good trees to choose from, but they represented different species or styles, we actually find quite, quite a lot of difference from jury member to jury member. Um, and I, you know, we didn't get the feedback on every single tree, so we don't know why they went the way they did. But it was just fun to see how much variability there was with three highly trained people. And so uh, we have an even broader diversity of experience in bonsai among our judging panel, but we also have much higher numbers of people participating, which will produce uh, hopefully a more reliable average across the group. Yeah, I think it's important also to remember to all the points that you listed that you know, you can make a judging rubric really complicated and you can say, oh, you need to pay attention to this and that and, and 10, 10 bullet points or something like that. And the reality is that I think anyone who's, who's been around bonsai long enough or who has reached the, the point where they can have a tree in this show probably is familiar with all of the basics. And so if you're asking someone to rank or score 75 different exhibits and they have to score all of them in order for their scores to count you can't require them to take too much time with each one um, and so the whether it's complicated or simple is sort of like how complicated of a judging rubric are you uh are you going to give them and then are they just going to disregard it if it's too complicated or you know, it's, it's a, these are the types of questions that we've been talking to each other about because 
you you can lay out the rules for people and you can say this is what you need to do but that doesn't mean that they're gonna do it and on top of all that there's the other variable which is these are people with very vested interests in certain trees beating out other trees and so the sole hedge we have against that is we will publish all of the judges scores online after the event we'll publish them anonymously so we won't know whose the scores are but it might be very suspicious if someone scored every tree a zero except for their own got a perfect score yeah and i mean when i asked you the question about the the criteria it's kind of opening the floodgates because you know like you guys have mentioned it's i'm glad it's you guys and not me because that creating that criteria would be just so difficult and trying to create something that's fair because like eric said you can't especially if you've got that many trees in a show it's really hard to say well this 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 and this and this we need to score on and then you know maybe then we can have some variability on personal preferences from there um it's just such a difficult task but luckily a really fun one and again because we've been through 19 years of this with boone's club we have some good experience with how the process actually works in reality and that's why we're confident that it's a great place to start from and then we'll learn based on you know what actually happens now there's other areas where we actually have been getting tons of good feedback for the exhibit and one is we've assembled a fairly good-sized team to produce a commemorative album of the event where we have multiple graphic designers layout people production people a project manager and it's this fantastic group has been doing everything from helping us figure out where the printing is going to happen, what the layout's going to be, what the content of the book is going to be. And so actually integral to planning out this entire event is we're, we're already hard at work on figuring out the details for the book so that we have a, kind of a representation other than digital that'll be available after the event. And that's going to be available for anybody to buy worldwide? Yep. Oh. I'm not really sure how the shipping will work worldwide, but we will have copies available. And if stamp technology allows, we'll have a great international option. Yeah, well, I mean, I've bought books from the US before, so at least to Australia, I know that it's possible anyway. I mean, it'll probably be a yep. little bit more expensive for an album. The last book that I bought from the US was um, Michael Hagedorn's book, um, Bonsai Heresy. Nice. So... Um, and I mean, it It does cost quite a lot more to ship it over. I think I pay, by the time I got it here, I paid about $110 for that book. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, it was worth it, right? Luckily, it's a great book. <laughs> I could still recommend it for that, right? That's a good rate. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, so we. it's funny, all of these things that Eric and I, when first planning this out, found that we all had fairly straightforward knee-jerk responses to almost every single challenge that's come up. And then when it gets the, to the details of, oh, so how's this actually going to work? It's forced us to do a lot more thinking than we'd expected up front. And so everything's moving forward. It's just going to be a lot more and more of our time we're expecting between now and November when the event you know, kicks off. So uh, what is the actual date in November for the show? The 12th and 13th. The 12th and 13th. Awesome. And um, it, it's obviously a ticketed show. Yep. Yep. So so where do people um, purchase those tickets? 
when they are available, uh, which we're hoping will be in the coming weeks, actually, they'll be available at pacificbonsaiexpo.com. Oh, okay. So the expo actually has its own entire website. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that makes things quite a lot easier. Yeah. We're going way out of our way to be as transparent as possible about the entire event. And so Eric has been releasing videos on the Bonsafi channel. I have been writing blog posts about the event on Bonsai tonight. The website has details about every last aspect of the event. And there's going to be a lot more added in the coming months, but whether it's the volunteer process, the, the, uh, the jury process, the judging process, the awards, uh, donations, sponsorships, and let alone the nuts and bolts of uh, things that will be available like ticketing, uh, all of that info is available on the site. And things like sponsorship, is that still open? Yes, yeah, so, open and heartily encouraged. Yeah, so if anybody <laughs> wants to reach out, then they just reach out to you through the Pacific Bonsai Expo website? That's right. Yeah, that's Yeah, and we can the website allows people to make uh donations with, you know, just basically like buying something online uh if they so choose, but they're also welcome to reach out to us uh to talk about sponsorships and and making donations. Yeah. Yeah, we have we have sponsors lined up for most but not all of our awards at the exhibit. So we have lined up the best deciduous, best conifer, a couple others. I forget which ones are still available, but uh, uh, most of those are spoken for. And that way, the sponsors will get credit whenever we mention the award. It will be their award that we are um, making available to the winner. Yeah, awesome. And I'll, when I post the, the podcast, I'll post a link to the website so anybody listening can actually click through and either make a donation or find out more information about the show you know, as it's getting closer and closer. Awesome. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap that up there. Um, I, you know, like, like I said to Bob, when we were doing the podcast, I had to get you guys on because the minute that I heard that you guys were doing a show, I just wanted to try and help promote it a little bit if I could, because I know you guys have your own podcast and you guys have your own successful, you know, YouTube channels and, uh, blogs and everything but the more people that we can get this out to you know the better the more people that we can get along to supporting shows to make sure that they you know happen again in two years in the case of this show um you know the more the merrier really we appreciate it yeah absolutely yeah we we get about three thousand downloads per episode um on this show so hopefully you know a lot of that's probably the same audience as you guys get on your podcast, I can imagine, um, because I, I find that now that, um, you know, with the, with the podcasts that are out there, that there's not enough. We, we need more podcasts. So for people that are listening, <laughs> yes. if, you, if you've got the ability to do a Bonsai podcast, please do, because by the time I get through, you know, Bonsai Wire and Asymmetry and... Um, you know, some of the Bonsai Southeast uh, have a podcast. There's there's only a day's worth of podcasts there. <laughs> it's true. For anyone that does a lot of long drives there, uh, we definitely need more Bonsai content on there. I'd love that myself. I mean, I mean, yeah, I think I uh, go ahead. I think I turned through every back episode of Bonsai podcast that I had queued up on my phone. My last trip to Portland and back, it was 
there weren't that many, even though I hadn't listened to them in a while. Yeah, I mean, if you're somebody that's just getting into Bonsai now and just discovering Bonsai podcasts, you've got a decent backlog, especially with Asymmetry. Um, but yeah, more more podcasts is definitely uh, something that that we need out there, and like you guys are doing more Bonsai shows, so um, you know, congratulations on the on the show, and I can't wait to see what comes of it. Thanks so much. So glad that you uh, took the time to chat with us about it today. It's not a problem at all. Yeah, it's been fun. All right. Thank you.